0: I'm actually quite curious on like, I mean, the Orthodox view of Satan, um, just because like, I mean, coming from a Protestant background, or at, least, at least from my upbringing at least, everything was like Satan. So like, if you get mad, you know, you didn't, you weren't really loving, you know, that's Satan right there. So like, yeah, if I did something wrong, or like I, I argued with my, my mom or something when I was younger, it's like, there's like I guess some messed up thing where it's just like, oh, like she was kind of like, pray for me, but like, you know, I'll pray for you. Satan's working through you. I'm just like, no, but like, I'm genuinely like angry at this. And it's like, that's yeah, that kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, a, a lot of things are viewed as Satan as a cause of it, a lot of things in the world, Where sometimes, I mean, I don't know if you guys draw a line between, okay, this is who, this is Satan's works right here. This is maybe just humankind, uh, just their innate village sin. Like, do you guys have a clear, distinct way of viewing Say it in his role and within the, and how the demons operate, and then yes, how human sin operates, and what would yeah, that Yeah, for sure.
1: This is very insidery stuff. Once you start to engage seriously in Orthodox spiritual practice, then you kind of have to know this stuff intricately because the devil and his demons will fight you harder. If you're either interested in Orthodoxy, or actually become Orthodox. They notice, and they fight harder against you. But your mom's not wrong. You're probably not entirely right either. (laughs) So we need to have three categories, not two. Here's what I mean by that. Something can be according to the will of God. It can be according to the will of the devil or one of his demons. Or it can be according to my own personal will. Now, with three... I have the capacity for overlap, don't I? Could something be my will and the will of God? Yes, it could be. For example, if someone has a desire to be married in a good and godly way, that could also be the will of God. That's a way in which that man's will and the will of God could overlap. Ha! Could a man's will, if it goes astray, also overlap with the will of Satan? Yes! That's what he's hoping for. So when the devil whispers an idea into somebody's consciousness, the person may go along with it or not. But if the person goes along with it, that demonic energy does enter into the person and begin to exercise influence from the inside.
0: Mm-hmm. And and so I guess I'm more of like not coming at you from a, like a new age, I guess a Buddhist perspective, where I like guess see there wouldn't be no Satan. It's just pure consciousness, it's just all, everything is God you know, how would you kind of
1: So the, the Buddhists are actually it? very clear about this. Historically, you know, the new agey folks, you know, forget about it. That's not a, they don't have a confession of faith, It's sort of just a collection of loose ideas out there that are generally this worldly. New agey spirituality is kind of, hey, you want to be richer and have a yummier life? Here's a thing that you might like. That's kind of the bottom line. It's material. Buddhism actually isn't like that historically. Buddhism could be, could be, could be, especially something like Zen, could even be viewed as a set of spiritual
2: practices very light on dogma. Which is nice. It's advantageous.
1: (laughs) The reason to talk to the Protestants most of the time, for that reason. Also, sometimes they become orthodox when they, I, I know of a man who was a Buddhist that became orthodox. Man, they're so good at being orthodox because they've known, they learned how to spiritually practice. Buddhist, not a practice. Orthodoxy is a set of spiritual practices which are hard. They're hard. Buddhism is too. So it's an advantage. Buddhists actually do understand demons because it came up. If you're trying to meditate, eventually they're going to, they don't like you to be quiet and honest. So. They'll probably visit. Anybody who sits in silence for a long time by yourself, under a tree, or in a cave in the wilderness, you're asking for it. You're asking for a fight. Because <laughs> the devil likes to mess with people. while he can. That's what he's doing. So, we don't have to agree to the temptation, but we can't lie to ourselves and say that there isn't lots of temptation all over the place. And we did not invent sin. In other words, mankind was not the inventor of sin. We didn't sin first. The devil, if you will, was the inventor of sin. Mankind sinned when they just followed his suggestion. When they obeyed the word of the serpent rather than the word of God.
2: And we don't have such a high position of power in this universe that we're free of demonic influence. We're supposed to win in a battle against them. It doesn't mean getting
1: superstitious
2: and weird, by the way, and it doesn't mean negating our own emotions.
1: Is it possible to have an emotion called anger or sadness? Could those emotions also be blameless? You can have emotion that is not sinful, that is natural. The Lord showed this in his life. What does he do when his friend dies? He cries. What would you do at your friend's funeral? You would cry. That's blameless emotion. There's no sin there. We also know the Lord took a nap. Remember? He was in a boat. The weather was bad. He's taking a nap. Taking a nap because he had a body. You ever taken a nap? I've taken a nap. So did Jesus Christ. Also, he also ate. He ate food. We know for a fact after he resurrected, he went to his disciples when they were fishing. Remember the miracle, of the fish, unexpectedly large catch. And then the Lord says, Give me something to eat. Right? So eating, hunger, tired, sleeping, grief, somebody died, loss. So you're blameless emotions. Sometimes the fathers call those the blameless passions. That's entirely natural. That's you. Anger is natural if you're using it to drive a sinful tendency out of yourself, which means out of the universe because the universe is inside of you, according to Saint Isaac the Syrian. But most of the time what we want to do is turn the anger in the face of somebody else. That's a demonic use of anger inspired by the devil. And the one who provoked the anger, in the case of parent-child, is the one violating the commandment that Saint Paul underlined. You know the commandment that Saint Paul underlined specifically to parents. It's one commandment he leans on to parents.
2: Children of their way.
1: No, 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 to, to, parents. Parents. What? no to, parents. Parents. to parents. to parents. To parents. We say to them. One That's thing. Probably. Don't make your children angry. I like the King James because it's strong. Provoke ye not your children to wrath. Don't do that. And then another place, the scripture says, this is to a husband and wife. Do not let the sun go down upon your anger, lest you give the devil an opportunity So what that means is, anger, when it is used in any other way than driving wickedness out of myself, if I'm using my anger to drive wickedness out of myself, to motivate myself to drive wickedness out of me, that's a good use of anger. It'll make me pray with more intensity and discipline. But if I'm using anger and focusing it at somebody else, that's inspired by the devil, because I attracted him to me, if you will, or a husband and a wife may have attracted demonic energy into their home simply by going to bed while angry at each other. My parents went to bed angry at each other more times than I can count, year after year after year after year after year after year. The energies that they invited into our home for so doing, dark as it gets. So we have to be very, very careful and understand that the spiritual world is not so far away from us. It's not so separate from us. C.S. Lewis pointed out wisely that maybe the smartest trick the devil ever pulled was getting people not to believe in him. But it doesn't mean an immature obsession with spirits either, because that happens too. This is when you meet people who are superstitious. And yes, Pentecostals do tend to sometimes be in that category. I've met a bunch. And sometimes Greek people that come from villages and are a little bit too obsessed with something other than saying their prayers, which means they got noetic spiritual energy that's not focused in the holy way. So they can get obsessed with all kinds of weirdness. There's lots of weirdness you can get obsessed with. And it's unbalanced. It's not sane. Sanity, in this case, in the spiritual domain, it takes a really honest and open perceptiveness, which means the ability to see clearly. But our lack of purity means we can't see, right? So as we are engaging in this process of purification, the benefit is we can begin to see as grace washes us and heals us. We can begin to see things that they are. For example, I've met a number of men who, before they became Orthodox Christians, lived lives of rampant homosexuality. Even famously, like, let's say, some of them left a lot of evidence in the public sphere for that—that was the lifestyle that they. I mean, and then they became Orthodox. They experienced a spiritual transformation. Got married to a woman and have beautiful kids. I have a friend in America. She was one of my boy students. She was hardcore, dikes on bikes kind of lady. She did ride a big Harley too, also.
2: Really cute, sweet lady. Guess what happened? She had a spiritual experience, a religious conversion.
1: Gave that up completely, has been happily married to my friend Roger for years. They have a bunch of beautiful kids together. Super happy. What I'm saying is that, yeah, we can go wrong in all kinds of ways, but divine grace is to come and heal that. Whatever it is, whether it's emotional imbalance, people that are superstitious, that think there's a demon everywhere when there's not, you know, and also people that ignore spiritual influence when it's manifestly what's going on. Just the ability to see clearly, to see the truth, to know what's right and wrong, This is actually a fairly high level of spiritual development. It's not that easy. It takes a lot of purification to be able to see certain things. So this is what the orthodox praxis or protocol is. It's a bunch of of processes, kind of like a washing machine. It is a machine, right? It's like a literal thing in your house, but it's also a process, right? Right? First, you you add the water and then you add the soap to it. You put everything in. And you shut the thing and then it spins around and it just. And then it spins it. It's a process. So purification, all of this, this is a process, and we need to engage these processes. On the other side of that, we can begin to see really clearly. Sometimes you can see a lot at once if the gracious word. things can happen as the Lord wills. But it is a process. We have to keep engaging in the process.
0: Yeah, and I kind of want to talk about like icons too, just because I want, I want to understand like understand it a little bit more. So I mean, just behind you, you have different sets of icons right there. Yeah. And you said earlier about like you saying a prayer. Was it to one of the icons? And then.
1: Well, we oh. face the icons, which are always on the <laughs> eastern wall or corner when we pray. We face the icons. Yes, but go on.
0: Okay. Um, I mean, so basically what's the significance of having them like on your wall right there and also like praying towards them? Is there some kind of connection that you develop? Is there some kind of tangible Ooh. presence that you feel when you start to practice or start yes. to practice yes. these icons in your
2: wall? Yes. Yes.
1: Yes, yes, and yes. Absolutely. This is something that's very developed in Orthodoxy. Iconography is viewed as windows to heaven. So, the people that are depicted in religious iconography are exclusively those in a state of divinization, which means angels and saints, or God Himself, because He took a body. It is right and proper and necessary to depict God and His saints physically, because God took a body. So, to deny iconography is to deny that Christ became man, which means we cannot be saved. So, we kiss the icons. When we kiss the icons, That saintly being in heaven kisses us back spiritually. We bow before them, just like people would bow in front of a king, because we are honoring God the Holy Ghost, who has united them to himself, purified them, illuminated them, divinized them, deified them. When we bow in front of icons, we are bowing... In honor of the receptacle of divine grace that person has become, and specifically in honor of God who has saved them, and they also, in fact, become repositories of grace. So you can receive grace by simply kissing an icon physically or bowing before it. This is an old Desert Fathers expression. They meant it. Give blood, acquire spirit. What they mean is. The way you can acquire spirit, you don't have spirit to transact with. You have matter to transact with. That's your currency and mine. It's matter. Hello, look at this. Physical. Cut me, I bleed, right? I'm physical, I have a body. So what I have to transact with is my body. I bow before an icon, hoping To receive in myself the grace of God, the Holy Ghost, which saved those depicted upon my walls. And I kiss them out of love, just like I would say kiss a mother or a friend. But I cross myself before I kiss those icons because they're perfect in a sinless state. And in that way, like God, no matter how holy a man is who lives on the earth, I would never cross myself before kissing him. Now, I might bow down. I do bow. When I go visit my elder in Mount Atlas, I will bow before him. I do not cross myself and then bow before him. With these icons here, I cross myself and then I bow before them. Because that's acknowledgement that they are in a perfect, divine state. Anyone on earth can commit a sin and be lost. No matter how holy he is, even if he's an apostle, like Judas, who works miracles and could do anything, that would amaze you. He can still be lost. So you never, ever, ever cross yourself and bow to a living person, but you do cross yourself and bow to icons and cross. It's necessary, in fact. And with the denial of iconography, it is impossible to be saved. That's the orthodox dogma on the matter.
0: Yeah, and then uh, like, what icons you have right there, and like, why do you have them? I can tell you a a little bit.
1: Yeah, actually, let me let me do this. We'll actually show you a little bit. Yeah. So now I'm gonna go point at a few icons. I'm gonna point at some favorites. Okay.
2: Okay, you see this one here? Yeah.
1: So this is an icon of Jesus Christ, specifically on the Thursday before Pascha, where he's suffering. So you see the suffering of the Lord before his crucifixion. That was given to me by a local iconographer.
2: Here's another one. This is a little icon of the Archangel Gabriel. He's one of the seraphim. He's very, very, very close to the throne of God. He taught
1: us how to worship the Mother of God and assists us with all manner of telling the truth, telling the good news, and making the praises of the Lord glorious. He also comforted the Lord Jesus. When our Lord Jesus broke his fast in the wilderness. Many people don't know that, but if you have a long fast and you're breaking the fast, ask the Archangel Gabriel to help you.
2: This icon was a gift to me. There's a place I go here to get
1: pedicures because I like my feet to be taken care of. It's a salon run by two ladies. Their father is a wood-burning iconographer. I guess they liked me and they told their father about me because I went there one time and they presented a gift from their father who I've never met. This is a wood-burning icon of my patron St. the Holy Apostle Nathaniel. So St. Nathaniel the Apostle in wood-burned style. So it's wood burned with a pen. So we have St. Nathaniel. And I'll show you one more. Most of my blood on both sides of the family is in the British Isles, specifically Wales. My last name is Welsh. This is Saint David of Wales, the patron saint of Wales. He is the patron saint of my people. So if you will, an elder, 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 elder brother to me. Both according to the flesh and spiritually. And we'll finish with one. This is St. John of San Francisco. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, and he is one of the greatest saints of the 20th century and also the local saint of San Francisco. He reposed there in 1966. So these are some saints to whom I'm related in a sense that's personal, and yet it's also universal, which is to say Catholic. That means they are all the recipients of the same universal Catholic faith. Not the Papists. They are usurpers. They're using that term Catholic, falsely. We are the one Holy Orthodox Catholic and Apostolic Church. There is no other church. There are other churches in the sense of other gatherings, but no other church in the sense of the body of Christ. That's a special sense of that word. Yeah, And also, I, I another, another thing I just I, want to share with you real quick about iconography before we leave the topic. When we studied Christian archaeology more and more and more, we've discovered that earlier Christians, when the Roman Empire became Christian, they were actually way more obsessed with religious imagery than we are now. They loved the Christogram, which looks like the letter K for Christos and the rock which is the first two letters of Christ in Greek. So a Christogram, which also looks like a cross, is one of the earliest Christian symbols. They put it everywhere. They put it in their dishes. They put it on their clothing. They put it on the floor of their dining room, just everywhere. So decorating the whole world, including the clothing and the plates, the everything with images of Christ and the saints, that's very, very, very much a part of Orthodox consciousness. In other words, it's a decorative. One of my monk friends points out the word cosmetics. When a woman buys cosmetics, what is she doing? Well, she's decorating herself, yeah? What do we call the, what do we call the universe? We call it the cosmos, the decoration. In other words, God loves beauty. Orthodoxy is beautiful, it is aesthetic to learn to become an iconographer is very, very difficult. My friend who painted this large one here of St. Niphon, he was a serious artist before he became Orthodox, before he became a monk. Now he's an iconographer. It still took him many years to learn how to do iconography. It's a specific tradition governed by the canons of the church. They have to apply the colors in a certain order, certain materials are permitted, others are not permitted. I mean, it's, it's involved, but it's very physical. So tactile, physical, in other words, the sanctification of matter, because we are matter, is a big part of orthodoxy. So decor, beauty, even opulence—these things are very, very orthodox.
0: Yeah, and then, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about hesychasm. Uh, uh, okay. So like what, <laughs> what? What exactly <laughs> is that? And then um. I mean where does it where is the origins of it?
1: A this is that topic about which we have nothing to say. That's the first answer.
0: We <laughs> mustn't say actually...
1: there's that. there's a something's hidden in there for you, but well, you'll pick it up. So I there's gotcha. a Greek. No, there's, I, I a, gotcha, there, there's a Greek word which you might hear a mother say to her children if they're annoying her. You would I've heard this before. I probably said it before to some unruly Greeks once upon a time. Isichia, parakalo. It just means quiet, please. So the first word Isichia Isichia means silence. To this very day it is literally used as in be quiet, silence. Parakalo is please. Isichia, silence. So the word hesychastic with the rough breather, the hard H, the Greeks started leaving the H off. So it would have been hezichia as opposed to easy here. It's had the hard H in ancient times. So hesychastic, hesychasm. In other words, a way of silence. Why did I say this is a topic about which we have nothing to say? Because if we say too much, we won't find the silence. So silence, stillness, literally, literally silence, is one of the major tools of salvation. Then in that state of silence, there is a tradition of prayer, which that is, of course, for the Orthodox. So I won't give people instruction in that here, but it is nothing more than the way of salvation, nothing less than the way of salvation. And to be purified is a physical reality, but it is also a noetic reality. A mindful of, I want this. I want some more of this. When will this stop? I don't like her. I'm jealous of him. These are all the chatter. and This is not the kind of mind that can pray. That's not the use of the noose, which is God-pleasing. The mind is actually a spiritual device, if you will. It's meant to be intimate with God. If that is full of all kinds of noise and untrained, then the mind, again, is not a vehicle that is fit for the kingdom of heaven. So we must train it. The way in which our noetic faculties are trained unto salvation is the way of hesychasm. This is
2: how to be saved. In fact, today, today is the feast day of the Mother of God's
1: entrance into the temple. She was a master of the art of continual prayer at the age of three, which is the age she was that we celebrate today. That's the stage of illumination, by the way, the second degree. It's actually quite a high realization. So, she is our exemplar because she was the master of the tradition of hesychasm by the age of three. And then she lived with that. And the, the prerequisites for being God's mom are not small, as you might imagine. By the way, speaking of genetics, all of the Old Testament was about creating the purest possible DNA lineage
2: so that the Lord could have the holiest possible mother, and then be born of a virgin. So genetics is real.
1: Yeah, the body's real. And hesychasm is something that we really are now moving into the second stage after purification, but they aren't separate either. They really aren't separate. So yes, this is an important thing. And it cannot be separated from salvation. It cannot be separated from orthodoxy. In other words, if somebody comes to you with an orthodoxy that is not hesychastic, that's not orthodoxy. It's not optional. It's not like, oh, well, there are some people who live out in caves, and they like to be really quiet all the time. <laughs> like it's for some special, special re- No, this is the way of salvation. Period. You wish to be with Christ? hesychasm's for you. And, you know, and I mean this in all truthfulness between you and I personally. If you're interested in this, and you know, you want to take this further, then, then this is a conversation that can continue for the rest of your life. And many saints have written in the Hesychastic tradition so as to provide guidance. And there are still men among us my spiritual father, the most notable, as I understand, in the hesychastic tradition, who are masterful, and these are the spiritual masters of Orthodoxy. These are the saints of our time, but they are also <laughs> the saints down throughout the ages. This is Orthodox sanctity. It is a hesychastic spirituality.
0: So you need a guide for hesychasm, right? Is that you need like a? Would you need a guide for to practice this, and why is that?
1: Well, every Orthodox Christian has a guide, according to the Holy Fathers. The guide for hesychasm is God, the Holy Ghost. Now, it is very, very, very
2: advantageous
1: if you can find a man or woman who is a master of this practice, because it is a real practice. Just like being a chef as a practice, like you don't accidentally be a good chef. It doesn't happen like randomly. Think about being a concert pianist. Was there a time where you knew of that it just accidentally happened, that somebody woke up a great- No, he went and found another concert pianist and he learned. Probably started when he was five years, right? Like, so nothing in the world of mankind, generally speaking, ordinarily, or plumbing for that matter. You learn plumbing from plumbers. So just on the earth among men, If you wish to learn anything, it is highly advantageous to have a guide. So if you want to be really following the Orthodox way of salvation, it would be good if you have an experienced guide, but they're difficult to find. Now, what did I do to find one? I searched the faith of the earth until I found him. That's what I did. And I would have kept hunting, but I found him. Not because I'm such a good person. It's just that's what I wanted. And then he found me when I wasn't looking, which is often and down. Now. But I was looking in the right places, and I've made my life a project of looking for people like this. So, yes, he's still alive. And it's useful because that's how people learn things. Would you be, ah, uh, let's say, guess, a better chef if you studied with a master chef for ten years, or if you just made it up as you went along in your own house? maybe the one who went to study in Paris in chef school for 10 years, just maybe he's a better chef than somebody. Who, maybe, right? It doesn't mean, though, that if you can't find a guide in the body, it doesn't mean you can't make progress. Because for hesychastic spirituality, the Holy Ghost himself is the guide. He is the teacher. He is the coach. And he knows because God is merciful. He knows there are people who wish to be saved and maybe actually can't find somebody. God himself's going to cover you in that case. And there are many, many texts that you can use, some of which were even designed to be used if you don't have a guide. Even though it's so better if you do. Cause it is. Practically.
2: Yeah.
0: So yeah, I've watched videos on like orthodoxy and like I mean, more specifically inner watchfulness or inner vigilance. And they talk about, you know, how to get in these states of prayer, like, you know, the mind tends to wander. So I mean more specifically the jesus prayer as well like so you're, when you pray for example mind starts to wander and you do your best to keep it here and focus on the prayer like that so i mean can you talk about maybe that concept of just inner watchfulness in general and vigilance and like what like that specific part of like why does the mind tend to wander and what is it like to finally just keep it like that still
2: it's
1: got to do with the ancestral sin why does the mind tend to wander? Remember what I said? What do we inherit from Adam and Eve? Not
0: guilt. No, tendencies. Tendencies.
1: That's right. That's right. When Adam and Eve sin, the mind and the heart got a divorce. Your mind and your heart got a divorce. That divorce of the heart and the mind is what religion, by the word religio, the Latin word it is, the word for is to bind. To reconnect. Your mind and your heart need a reunion. And the mind untutored is likely to be unprofitable because of the tendencies we've inherited. So it's designed, your mind is designed to worship God. To be intimate with him and to know the truth. That's what it's meant for If it ever manifests in a way that isn't like that, then it isn't being used according to nature. The number one piece of advice given in the Desert Fathers by an elder to a disciple was what? You've read the Desert Fathers. What was the number one piece of advice?
0: I remember from last episode, I think it's be attentive to thyself. That's it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. This is the beautiful thing about us. See, God made you and me a certain way, He made us for paradise. So when you start to use, so your your mind itself can be attentive to itself
2: and also to the body, your attention alone has something benign, beneficent. And then to pray with attention, that is how you can make spiritual progress
1: but to pray without attention work without pay according to Elder Joseph forget about it there are people that do pray without attention
2: and that's going to be a waste of time for sure
0: Mm -hmm. and uh, are you familiar with different stages of prayer? like is there different stages of prayer within orthodoxy?
2: there are Indeed. And this is again in the category of here's where we shouldn't be talking about this. Okay, so how do we talk about something we shouldn't be talking about? The answer is there are definitely stages. There are experiences which I have had. I'm not going to speak about them at the moment. And this is where a spiritual guide is very, very helpful extremely helpful, because you need to have some ideally. not It's
1: not always going to be possible, sadly, for everybody. But you you would ideally like to have somebody who has had the experience of what you're going through right now. That would be ideal. Who has literally been on the stage where you are, or can see what stage you're on just by looking at you. There are people like that. And because it's easy to fall off of this path because the devil's really invested in you falling off of it. It's really helpful to have somebody to keep you making progress in the the right direction. And so let's just talk about things that we can talk about so as to scare the wrong folks off. What does it look like when this goes wrong?
2: I'll tell you. It looks like pride. Looks like vainglory. It looks like
1: delusion. Looks like more delusion and more delusion.
0: Yeah, the word would be a uh, prelust, right? What that's that's, that's yeah.
1: the Russian word. The Russian word for delusion. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it looks like insanity, sometimes it looks like suicide. Mm. All of the monasteries on the holy mountain of Athos, all of them have dungeons. They're straight-up medieval dungeons. They're dungeons that are dungeons. They're not just called that. They're dungeons. That was for where to put ones when it went wrong. And there were other cases for the dungeons as well. Could be self-incarcerated when it was necessary. In other words, talk to anybody who's serious about any spiritual tradition. When it goes wrong, it can look like suicide. When Judas... Betrayed the Lord, he did not repent. He left the tradition of holy orthodox spirituality and killed himself. That's really the worst that it can get when this goes wrong. So we have to understand that hesychastic spirituality, this is access to paradise. This is access
2: to eternal bliss, intimacy with God. Having that process go wrong is is not a it's not a trivial matter. Mm-hmm.
1: It's also the access to working miracles and things like this. So it's if you if you were to think about electricity for a moment, you know, you've met electricians, I'm sure, right? All electricians know they're dealing with real power. It's kind of mysterious because think about electricity from where is it? Good electrician will tell you it's not actually even in the wires. It's a very mysterious force. It's also very real. Just because I can't be like, oh, there's electricity. like, here's some electricity. right? What? But it's real enough to kill you. Go mess with the power. You're dead. You don't have to believe in electricity for it to go wrong and kill you dead. In other words, when we're talking about this level of spirituality, we're talking about ultimate power. God, who is a consuming fire. So we have to tread very carefully, have a sense that this is beyond us. And if we can just become like little children, then maybe by grace we shall begin to approach it in a God-pleasing manner. But humility is required for this. And we're seeking mercy. We're seeking mercy. What we're seeking in prayer, including Noetic and Hesychastic prayer, is this we acknowledge we've gone wrong, simply means we've disobeyed the commandments. We wish for God to make us obedient to his commandments. That's what we're praying for.
0: Yeah. Okay, so what is um for, from orthodoxy, what's your um view on evangelism, right? So like today in Christianity, if I were to obviously join a church, I'd be encouraged to go out and share my faith, tell people about Jesus come yeah, kind of to my church and things like that
1: yeah marketing marketing yeah, marketing. Marketing.
0: yeah. yeah basically so what's like the orthodox like ortho, like do you guys go out and evangelize that guys... that's
1: what you're describing has a word what you're describing we don't call that evangelism we call that proselytism or proselytizing it is forbidden it's forbidden in orthodox doesn't mean we don't have missionaries we do we have missionaries we have missionary saints. All the apostles were missionaries. Here's
2: the thing. There is a missionary calling. It's real. It's a very high calling. It's an apostolic calling. Save yourself. If you do,
1: a thousand souls around you will be saved, says St. Sarek Mozorov. If you become a holy man, you won't be able to keep them away from you.
2: If you can keep them away from you, then you can wait
1: until you can't. Read the lives of the saints and find out about the great monastic elders. It was always so and so went off into the wilderness into a cave to save his soul. They found him. They found, how did they? I don't know. But people are walking around on the earth looking for spiritual food. Now, there is something else though. If you have a relationship, I mean, let's say you have a friend. I'll just give you an example. Let's say that you do become Orthodox, and you really feel that this all of a sudden it touches your mind, it touches your heart, it touches your body. You're feeling this internal healing as you're being purified. You're now participant in the holy mysteries. You're beginning to touch into what it is to live a life where an intimacy with God is really possible for you, a life of love, a life of joy, a life of peace. And then there's someone in your life who's just a friend, who's already a friend, but not Orthodox. And this person
2: says to Ezekiel, what do you know, man? I know you know something. What do you know? What's going on with you? What is that light in your eyes? Why doesn't this
1: get you down the way that it gets other people? Why are you courageous when they ask you to call a man a woman and you won't? I know a man's not a woman. But I don't have the guts. Why do you have the balls to tell the truth in public? Where does it... When they start to ask like that, you better be able to have an answer. Then you got to have an answer. But they need to knock. They need to knock on your door. Now, if you have a legit apostolic calling, because people do, they do. There are people with this calling. You better be ready to apostle up. But the apostles themselves, and I do mean the 12 apostles, if you read the scriptures, you will notice they were not sent to that work of apostleship until late in their training. They had the Holy Ghost, Christ had ascended After Pentecost, now they're commissioned. So in other words, the state of theosis was the prerequisite for orthodox evangelism. Historically, that's the orthodox example. So what do we do traditionally? The proper way is go put a monastery in a place where there's no orthodoxy. Inside the monastery, there will be orthodoxy. Help the people. Make the truth available to them. The most recent high-level apostolic work that changed the whole continent or a whole land area is the Russian missionaries in the 18th century who went to Alaska. That's an apostolic work. St. Herman, St. Juvenal, oh, these are saints. These are men in the apostolic life. So there is that calling. It is real. But we approach... What is according to our strength? Also, orthodoxy is so attractive. When it is that a man acquires grace such that it's true that he's in a state of theosis, he's going to attract people to him. It just is almost never otherwise. Because spiritually hungry people they have an intuition. And also the angels whisper to them they tell over there is somebody who will help you. And then then the holy man's probably just went, Oh, they found me. Okay. But for love's sake, he has to do whatever they need. Teach them the truth, right? So it is a good thing, of course, to give a good answer. But you don't want to answer questions that aren't being asked. And the Lord talked about this. This is pearls before swine. So you have good questions. I just look at you and I see and I feel this man is trying In his questioning, in his inquiry, he's trying to learn about the truth. If I turn a blind eye to that, if I ignore you, heaven help me. Then I would be guilty of sitting here at a meal full of food and a hungry man is in the street walking by and just let him starve. That I can't do. Can't do that. But by the same token, I'm not saying I will go out there and proselytize the world into being baptized. There are priests who have taken that approach and wrong-headed. And I've seen priests do this. Not all of them, but sometimes, unfortunately, they do this. They're trying to rush as many people through baptism as possible. Now, the baptism is real. The chrismation is real. It's real. But they're not catechized, so they don't know what they got into. What they got into was the biggest spiritual battle of their lives with the highest stakes ever, and they had no idea, and they don't even want to be there. And then after a while, you don't see them in the church for, like, ever. But maybe somebody comes back, that's when proselytism, proselytizing, replaces true evangelism. It also means that the quote-unquote evangelist lacked the discernment to do his job. He didn't have the apostolic sort of enlightenment. It's a calling, it's a vocation, and it's not a small matter. By the same token, every single one of us, whether or not we have that apostolic calling, if we're orthodox and somebody asks, we do need to be able, like in the case of you and me right now, you're asking good questions. I have to have answers for you. It's literally my duty as a Christian.
0: Definitely, yeah, I definitely resonate with like the pro before, before swine stuff because yeah, people just will take the information and just turn a blind eye and just like throw it away. It's like so useful, it's so useful, but yet. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's uh, it's May
2: like...
1: I, I may quote the Dalai Lama in the spirit of what you're saying. Have you heard him on this?
0: On on which one?
1: It's sort of on this topic.
0: He said on you, the you topic want to...
1: of, Like who needs religion?
2: Never heard that. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, he
1: basically says like this.
2: It's medicine. Spirituality is medicine needs it if you're sick. In other
1: words, what he's saying, the Dalai Lama is saying, you tell me you're not sick. I tell you, I got nothing for you. Have a nice life. The Lord Jesus said it in a different way, but almost the same way. The physician has come to heal the sick, right? In other words, you say to Jesus
2: Christ, hey, I'm not sick. The Lord says, wonderful, I'm out. You don't have to need me.
1: It's fine. There are some Jewish rabbis today that are telling people
2: that God needs you. No. God is not a heartbroken teenager. God loves you. He doesn't
1: have some need. But he's a physician. If you have a sense, another way the Lord said it, if you're labor and heavy laden, come to me, I will give you rest. Whereas, are you tired? We know where the rest is. Are you sick? We know where the healing is. We got that. But if you tell us, guess what? I'm not tired, I'm fine. I'm not sick. It's fine. We're not trying to tell the world that they're tired and sick. With but if you're hungry, we do know where the food is. And if you ask us, it's our job to tell you. If we don't, heaven help us.
2: we will be judged partially for not feeding the hungry. Both spiritually and also with real food with the body.
0: Are there like any other things in like society that you see that Orthodox Christianity would have a problem with? No, you said we talked about yes, the there. transgender stuff. Is there any other issues that seeing... Well, the
1: the the uh... Brand spanking new disease, complete with its own array of custom syringes for you to get shot up on. That is something our saints prophesied about specifically. That's the largest instantiation of witchcraft that I know of in the history of all things. The Lord himself even prophesied about this. In the scriptures, in the book of Revelation, the Lord prophesied about that. And so deceiving the world through pharmakia. it's the Greek word for two things, magic and medicine, it's the same word. Pharmacology, pharmakia, that is how the world will be deceived. So the Antichrist is going to have finally a mark of a beast, which will be a medicalized, implanted via technology. What we saw during the
2: brand spanking new disease that
1: they recently created was the way to get this into the bodies of people living now to prepare mankind for the eventual mark of the beast. So St. John Chrysostom wrote three homilies which are politically incorrect. I'll tell you the title of the homilies, and you'll already know how politically incorrect they are. These three homilies together are called Against the Jews. One thing he specifically says in there is, have nothing to do with the Jews, especially
2: their medicine. That's St. John Chrysostom, whose liturgy we Serve in church most Sundays. Well, if you look for the names of the scientists who created every single, from every, and I do
1: mean the and the and the Johnson, all of them, and the heads of all those companies, without exception, they're all Jews. One hundred percent. Who warned you about that in the fourth century, Saint John Chrysostom? who warned us about that right in the scriptures, the world will be deceived by Pharmakia, the Lord himself. And this is right up to the saints of our time, right down to St. Paisius, who was my spiritual father's next-door neighbor, prophesied about the whole thing in detail.
2: So this is the Antichrist program. And it's in the culture. Also, making
1: people hate each other based upon
2: characteristics which are immutable. So the generation of hatred between groups and the division
1: around these things, this is all the machinations of the devil. If people were at peace with each other, they might wish to know the truth and be safe. So keep them poor, keep them. Another thing that is an abomination, according to the scriptures, equivalent to homosexuality, is lending money at interest, the sin of usury. And differing weights and differing measures. Those are abominations. They're against Christianity, also brought into society by Jewish influence, but they're totally forbidden to Orthodoxy. And they destroy societies, which is the economic collapse that's happening right now, in America especially. It's what happens when people disobey the commandments against usury and differing weights and differing measures. In other words, a fixed standard of value like a gold standard, that is in fact the Christian approach. A Christian empire run from Constantinople had a stable currency with with no inflation for 600 years. 600 years, no inflation. Because they had a Christian approach to finances. We have a totally demonic approach to finances, which is an abomination to the Lord, according to the scriptures and the tradition of the church. All Christians knew that until Protestantism. The Protestants borrowed ideas from the Jews, and they made America! Yay! Via Freemasonry. Via Freemasonry. That's how they did that.
0: I uh, like, so with the Freemason stuff, like, what do you, what other influences or things do you see? Being, I mean, obviously, with a big event happen, there's some kind of thing going on. But specifically, is there a certain, you know, rituals being put in place to where it's being oh, yes. people's perceptions oh, yes. on a lot yeah, of things? Yeah.
1: Remember the little shoot it up into your arm based upon the brand spanking new disease, that one? Before those doses went out, and we know this via spiritual means, they were put through a ritual that included the sacrifice of infants. So the the most powerful rituals that please the devil include the slaughter of children, especially the slaughter of children by their own parents. So those rituals were done to energize those syringes with demonic, satanic energy. And then they were sent out to the whole world. That was done in the United States of America. So the great Satan, the Antichrist, all this is America plays a big part. Freemasonry was how America was founded, as well as how France was founded after the French Revolution. And Freemasonry is just one thing. It has two flavors, but it's one thing. It's devil worship. It is an actual religion which worships Satan. Now, only the high-ranking members worship him by name. The low-level members don't know that that's what it is. It's one of the secrets they only tell them once they get higher up. But Freemasonry is 100% the worship of the devil, either wittingly or unwittingly. And their job as Freemasons is to infiltrate all the governments of the world and all the religions of the world to be the wolves in sheep's clothing, which we must expect. And the Antichrist, when he comes finally, eventually, he will be clothed as an Orthodox patriarch.
0: I never heard it like that, Orthodox Pete. I I think maybe it's... uh...
2: He won't. He obviously (laughs) won't be orthodox.
1: He will be, if you will, the devil incarnate, but do you remember where did the devil want to sit? He wanted to sit in God's chair. Right? Mm -hmm. So what garment would the Antichrist, a man, totally possessed by the devil, want to appropriate to himself? The garment, which is worn, supposedly should be worn, by the most honored and respected and beloved and holy and reliable Christian on the face of the earth, who should be a patriarch. That's the kind of person who should become a patriarch, should be not only a saint, but a great saint. And so that's the outfit the Antichrist wants to wear. So it's called Antichrist against Christ, Antichrist. It's appropriation and inversion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. To me, that would make sense. In terms of like, okay, because obviously that's kind of like a big statement. So to kind of unpack that, I mean, if you're practicing half certain practices like hesychasm, right, and you're accessing, you know, God's power and His presence, and then maybe use it to, maybe someone that practices it and then they become deluded and then they, maybe that's the way to explain it. I mean, is that kind of? You're asking
1: us a question, though. Can you say the question with more words?
0: Or I'm kind of just saying like a statement, but like, um, like. I would assume that somebody that is gonna be the Antichrist and they're sitting in the Orthodox chair, they were probably they probably practice hesychasm and probably have access to certain spiritual height, and then at some point they become per perverter or something. Well, I'll
1: put it I'll put it this way, and I've met Luciferian practitioners. I mean, if you if, you, if you're into like knowing what's really happening on the earth, eventually you you meet the players. Like their they're people too. So, give you an example. We've talked about semen retention. That's how we got into this conversation. Guess what? There are Luciferians that are practicing semen retention because it will give them more spiritual power. They just want to take that power and serve the devil. So, yes, you are correct to say in the sense that there are people who, in fact, will do spiritual practices, but they are perverted and inverted. And their goal is always this worldly. That's how you can spot it. They want money and power right now. Money, power, influence, now. Right now. It's always God or mammon. If you look at the life of Christ, he said, no, I'm not going to rule the earth like a king. I will tell the truth and then die. That's the path. The anti-Christian path is no thank you on the telling the truth part. I want to be the king, whatever that costs. Perfect example in our time, Prince Charles, who is now King Charles. I
2: have a number of friends that are personal friends with Prince Charles. Prince Charles knows the true faith. He gives money to Mount Athos. He visits Mount Athos. According to British
1: law, if he were to be an Orthodox Christian, he would not be allowed to be the king of England. Period. He knows orthodoxy is the true faith. He has no question about it. I know people that are on a first-name basis with him. He said, huh, I could be orthodox or king of England. I choose king of England. Despite all of the wacky esoteric practices and seances and whatever, it's always going to, that will be the binary. It will be God or mammon. So even the Luciferians, the this-worldly dark magicians who are in league with Satan, who our elected officials generally work for. These are people, most of their faces we don't know. You're going to start knowing more of their
2: faces, though, in the next era of history. just coming. But it's always power right now. They don't want to
1: deny themselves any pleasure. They want to get it all now.
2: It's so this worldly religion. Whereas Orthodox Christianity is otherworldly. <laughs> The kingdom of heaven is within you.
0: Is there any other issues that you would say that orthodoxy has a problem with? Or is there like, um, I mean, it's probably a ton of, but like. Well, one that
2: orthodoxy, up to
1: on a positive side, yeah. we speak with a voice that you could, you could call rightly the voice of the church. And that is the saints. So if you study the lives of the saints throughout history and you look at what the saints did,
2: you're going to be able to find a saint from any age category, both men and
1: women, both wealthy and poor, and in between, and in every profession, right? So when you read the lives of the saints, what you read is real people that did real things in the world. Saints are always going to be of service, Tangibly now, because they love and love serves. That's just what love does. Can I get you a glass of water? Are you hungry? Can I? This is how love behaves, right? So the saints are being of service. The church is being of service. Christians are meant to be of service. So the Orthodox view, if you will, of how do we intersect with practical life? We're here to love God, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So loving God has to be done in an orthodox manner, or it isn't pleasing to God. In other words, we have to love God the way he taught us to, rightly glorifying, ortho, straight, doxa glory. But then how do we love man? Well, we should love our fellow man, based upon the example of the saints, in response to the needs of our fellow man. So in other words, orthodoxy has a lot of good to do. We need to go out there and do good things. We need to do it out of love for Christ. This means telling the truth and doing what we can to ease pain and suffering. And the telling the truth is really, really important, but it's not divorced from a moral life of contribution. St. Paul said it like this. This is sort of the big, 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 big. Here's orthodoxy. If it's real. What did St. Paul say about true religion? Do you remember?
0: I can't remember, but it, it, it's like in the back of my head.
1: True religion, true religion, which is to say pleasing to God is this. It is to feed widows and orphans. That's charity. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's purity. So this is the the way that orthodoxy interacts with society is we must interact out of love, but we mustn't interact in such a way as to compromise the truth or let ourselves be corrupted. But we are people on the earth. And if you look at the life of Jesus Christ before he turned 30,
2: it would appear that he was a holy man and a carpenter who was profoundly of service probably didn't say a lot until he did. He was God. He was very
1: God, very God, prior to his ministry. So most of us don't have a calling like the last three years of the life of Christ, right? The last three years, that's his ministry. Most of us are not really called to something that is precisely
2: like that.
1: You know, traveling around, floating on water, working many miracles. Some people are called to that. It's very few. Apostles for sure. The life that the Lord lived in the first 30 years, all of us are called to that
2: kind of a life. So, love, joy, peace, patience, loving kindness, goodness faith, humility,
1: self-control, to behave like that, and then to do what you're inspired to do.
2: This is what the Lord asks, an Orthodox Christian.
1: Where or St. Paul's put it, work quietly with your own hands.
0: I was watching a video of a saint, and His name's was like Elder Perfidios, I think. Yes, his uh, feast
1: day was two days ago. Oh he used to, He was friends of a number of friends of mine, actually.
0: That's cool. Yeah, he had an interesting thing, I think. It was like, a, I mean, so he was living in like a monastic life, I think.
1: Yes, he was in
0: Um He moved over to the city. That's right. And then he was trying to maintain his practice, but there was so much noise. Like he's trying to maintain the inner quiet inside of him and being continually be in a state of prayer. And then he was like, you know, I can't do this. Like a prayer, I think somewhere along the lines so where he couldn't really, he wanted to go back to the monastery life because it was too much, like the noise and everything. Uh, but he prays to God to show him, like, uh, a sign or something, if he should go back. And it was, like, the sign of, like, a water drop, um, like, a water dropping or something. And So with that, with that right there, then he got a realization of, like, oh, no, it was a physics textbook he was reading or something. And So I think with the water dropping and, oh, I can't remember. I mean, do you remember the story?
1: Well, I do understand what you're saying in a more general sense, the specific story, I don't remember the details, but it is true. St. Proferius was a monk, and then he had a calling to be a chaplain at a hospital in the center of Athens for 30 years. And if you ever visit this part of the world, I can show you all these places, by the way. And yes, he did return to the holy mountain of Athos to end his earthly life there. And yeah. he also prophesied and was a remarkable, holy man, living right there in the middle of a city. But of course, he wished for that hesychastic life. And finally, the Lord did allow him to return into that silent place. And yeah. I have some friends that live very close to where he's buried, actually.
0: That's a blessing right there. I mean, just to be around all that. Yeah, it's cool. Yes, indeed. But yeah, I mean, the point that I was trying to make though, during, it, during that time when he in the city, just like the son that he got to stay there was... Um, that if you have a greater spiritual force within you, then the sounds around you shouldn't really matter. Like, it's just, you just emanate. I mean, just the ripple effect that you have is just, it'll drown out those other noises. It's
2: beautiful. Um,
1: That's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful to think of that. And it's not easy, of course, to be yeah. in cities. It's not easy to be in a society which is not only not interested in Jesus Christ, but is in many ways radically opposed to our Lord. But the Lord predicted this too, so we shouldn't be too surprised because it was all predicted. You know, we're warned. The Lord Jesus warned us about false shepherds, that is, people who come in the name of Christ pretend to be Orthodox and are not. There are all these things if you read the Gospels. The Lord just warned us.
2: And so we do need to be patient. There's a lot of room in the spiritual life, which seems to
1: be sort of confusing or where to begin, but to be patient, which essentially means to allow oneself to experience the suffering of the present moment as long as it takes, not running from the suffering. If that is what's required, of course, to pick up my cross, then I, I may, in fact, run right into the suffering, not away from it. But that being patient, this is something that if someone becomes orthodox, especially an American like me, he's going to have to learn to be patient. The countries where people have been orthodox for years, like Russia and Greece, they're better at being patient. They just are Like I could literally drop you in Russia and you'd figure out in five minutes, everyone in this country is way better at being patient than I ever have been in my whole life. All of them, they just are so when we become Orthodox from a culture that isn't, especially a Protestant culture that's kind of wealthy, smart, successful, we have to learn about being patient. Right. And let's say, you know, somebody receives Orthodoxy. It's intense, by the way. It's super exciting. There's nothing more exciting because it is the truth. and You get all of it. You get access to all of it. And yes, we still have saints who float off the ground and they pray. Yes, I know one personally. I mean, this is real. It's very exciting. And then you realize I'm supposed to say... This many prayers and do this many prostrations. That's a real exercise that I have to do it or not do it. And a lot of it becomes like, am I going to go to the spiritual gym today? And am I going to go to the spiritual gym like it is my number one job on the face of the earth or not? Or am I going to do something else? Am I going to put all my energy into my relationship with Jesus Christ? Or am I going to try to chase the world? It's going to be a patient process of necessity. If if we're going to make real progress, we're going to have to learn patience. And that's generally the one that those of us coming in from the outside seem to have a, a bit of trouble with. Now, we also need zeal and enthusiasm.
2: This is where people that convert as adults, people like you, tend to excel. But that's also necessary. You need zeal. You need enthusiasm. Nobody's saved without that. Ever. So the
1: patients, the people that are baptized as babies, they're, they're more patient, usually. The people that come in as adults, usually you're more intense and zeal, zealous and excited. You actually need both.
2: You need the patience and the enthusiasm. That's how you make saints. Someone said it once like this in Greek. You need three
1: things. Hypomoni, epimoni, That means patience, persistence, enthusiasm. they all necessary. Patience, persistence, enthusiasm. And that is, if you will, that's the qualitative sensibility of an Orthodox way of life. This is what, let's say, an ordinary person becomes Orthodox. To a regular dude. It becomes Orthodox. The way of life that is orthodox, which will be a contribution that he will make in whatever
2: sphere God places him. Patience, persistence, enthusiasm. Love, joy, peace. That's the way of living,
1: which is the orthodox contribution to society, you might say. That's what we have to offer. And then when the pagans were a society and the Christians were on the edges of it, the empire, the Roman emperor decided to become Christian It was more or less, in a sense, pragmatic, although it was also enlightened because Saint Constantine did have enlightenment that was divine, but there was a pragmatic element. The Christians are winning. They're better at regular life. They feed their sick and their poor and our sick and our poor. There are a lot of poor people always in life. The Christians are the ones taking care of all the poor. Pretty soon, the pagans realized, We're going to lose on popularity contest grounds. These people are nicer, they're stronger, they're more honest. If they join the military, they're the best soldiers. If they're doctors, they can heal with herbs and also by prayer. I mean, we're going to lose. Their way of life is actually superior. And the Romans said we will become Christian because it is the superior way of life. They're correct, it is. It is the superior way of life both on earth and to make earth the antechamber of heaven, but this must be learned, and it's not easy. To live an orthodox way of life today, in the world today, it's probably more difficult than at any point in history, because society today, even the societies that claim to be Christian, are probably more sick than pagan societies were 2,000 years ago. They're just so sick and weird, you know, so it's difficult. It's really difficult just to be alive on the earth right now. It's way more difficult to be an Orthodox Christian on the earth right now. It's really, really, really hard. But by being patient, holding forth the confession of the faith, which means to stay Orthodox, to stay with the true faith, to just be patient and to confess the true faith, say, I'm a sinner, but I'm confessing the true faith. I'm going to be patient no matter what comes. That's our shot. The thief on the cross. You remember the thief on the cross? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the how to be saved for right now. That's the present time formula. Follow the example of the thief on the cross. In other words, are we gonna have a whole life of asceticism and great works to point to? The thief on the cross didn't. Most of us are not going to either. But what we can do is what he did. He called himself a sinner publicly. He said, I deserve to be here, die. I'm a sinner. And then he confessed the Orthodox faith, Jesus Christ is the God of
2: Orthodoxy. The Lord said, "Today you'll be with me in paradise." That's 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 our hope right there.
1: Mm-hmm. And we, of course, have to also be patient, as He was. He endured the insults from the other thief on the other side of the Lord, and surely the insults of the crowd and all of that as His. So we have to be patient. It's a it's a way of being which is not very American. It's not very modern. So patience is it's like. A forgotten virtue. We're gonna to have to become reacquainted with patience. Yeah.
0: definitely. <laughs> I live in Los Angeles, so it's like, it's like that, you know. There you go. Wants their stuff to just, like that.
1: You know. You know. Yeah. I worked in Silicon Valley for years. Everybody wants everything done yesterday. Ideally, three days ago. Yesterday's not really soon enough for Silicon Valley anymore. They want it three days ago. You
2: know? Yeah.
1: So um. the advantage, however, I will say there are some advantages. The zeal, the intensity, the enthusiasm. Saints are like that. That Silicon can value it. No, no, no. That there is an orthodox sense of that too. Because the scripture says, today is the day of salvation. Now, today. So there is that intensity, that enthusiasm. There's also, right? So this is spiritual maturity, is what orthodoxy asks. All of the above. If you ever meet a saint it's a person but it's a person in whom everything is ordered so there's an enthusiasm but there's a calm a gentleness there's a strength but there's a humility there's
2: a clarity but there's a willingness to listen to what the other party has to say there's a shrewdness a cleverness but there's a kindness a gentleness
1: so it's really who we're meant to become. Is what orthodoxy is about. It's about becoming who you are and
2: becoming who you're meant to be. This is the the aim of 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 our faith, of our religion.
1: And Saint Seraphim said it like this: to to acquire the the spirit of peace. He said it like that. I made a funny face because I. I feel bad sometimes quoting great saints in a context that might reach people that aren't interested in that, but it's also late in the game, by which I mean late in history.
2: So if anyone is interested in becoming an Orthodox Christian, it's of course, it's a real
1: possibility and it's always now. The way is open. The way is open and is open now. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I know God said. I
0: think it's a good place to end it, but um, maybe we can leave someone with a with a favorite quote of wisdom of yours, from mm. a saint. Would it be like something that?
1: Can... I'm gonna
2: see what I pull up here from the lives of the saints because we have a saint every day, and
1: so today is the feast day of the entrance of the Mother of God into the temple. And I think what's appropriate for people to understand who really, truly desire the truth. There's absolutely no one who truly loves God that does not love and adore his mother. So something to leave people with, a very, very, very clear necessity is to cultivate a relationship with the mother of God and to
2: follow her. Christ is himself the way. His mother is our leader. And if we're going to be the Christian men and women we're supposed to be, we're going to have to live by her example. We're going to have to become intimate with her, devoted to her. And we're going to have to be willing and grateful to receive her in the way that the Lord presented her, you remember that at the foot of the cross there was the Mother of God and St. John, the theologian. The rest were afraid. But the Mother of God and St. John, the divine, there they were. From the cross, the Lord says, Woman, behold thy son. What he's saying is, To St. John the theologian. This is now your mother. If we are willing. She will become our mother. Too. Unless we know her as our mother. And the mother of God. We we do not have. The proper hope of salvation. (laughs) And so. The
1: mother of God, this is, if ever there was a very, very, very proper way
2: to begin the journey towards the true faith, towards Holy Orthodoxy, the mother of God, the Theotokos, this is what one must cultivate.
1: I know Father Seraphim Rose, who we should probably call Saint Seraphim of Platina, California. He started praying noetically to the Mother of God before he was Orthodox, before he started praying to Christ even in that way. This drew him. So I, I will leave it there with the mystery that is the Most Holy Theotokos, the Mother of God, the Virgin Mary, Virgin before, during, and after, giving birth to our Lord. And she is the one who shows the way, the one who directs us. So her example we must follow. If we would be saved cultivating a relationship with her as a
2: disciple to a master, as a student to a teacher, we must. We must follow her that way and as our mother. And she is a perfectly loving mother. And yet,
1: we all all need that perfect love. So tangibly, emotionally, in our nature as men and women, we need mothering. Well, This is perfect mothering. Also, she's the one who shows us the way of salvation. So there, the mother of God will have that be where we end our conversation today.
0: Awesome. And if people want to get in contact with you, especially people who haven't watched our first two episodes, where can they get in contact with you or where can they find you in general?
1: Well, let me say this. We can leave my email address here in the description. So disembodiedtone at gmail.com. You can also, if you like, you can check out my YouTube channel, Semen Retention Journey. And there's also a Telegram channel, That I link there. You can always join that group and you can message me on Telegram like that anytime you want to. So please do feel free to reach out, especially if you're a man who is interested in the things that we're talking about today, whether it's semen retention or these much, much more refined conversational topics. I'd be delighted to be of service if if somebody wants to reach out.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for coming. (laughs) Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it.
1: It's much, much a pleasure here. And so thanks for having me, man.